Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Amy Thielen at her February 3rd event at Prior Lake Library in Scott County. Thielen is a classically trained chef and host of Food Network's Heartland Table, a woman who spent years cooking in some of New York City's finest restaurants before returning home to Minnesota in 2008. Since then, she has worked as a freelance writer for publications such as the Star Tribune, Men's Journal, and Sever, and won a James Beard Journalism Award in 2011. Her first cookbook, The New Midwestern Table, was released in September 2013 and served as inspiration for her popular Food Network series, which debuted the same month. A cross between memoir, travelogue, and cookbook, the New Midwestern Table is a stunning collection of 200 recipes that reveal all Thielen's come to learn and love about the foods of her native Midwest. Okay, so I'm just going to go into kind of like what my background is and what it is, how I came to write this book, um, which has spawned this TV show and, you know, renewed interest in Midwestern food. And it doesn't begin with me by any means, but um, I think it's interesting that people are really becoming aware and tuning in to what we do here and what we cook here. I think it's really important. Um, I grew up in Park Rapids, Minnesota, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a pretty small town. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, so Park Rapids is a great town. It's a tourist town. Uh, I like to say that we are right where the Mississippi starts. That's what I tell people when I go to New York and they ask, where are you from? And I say, look at a map. It's right where the Mississippi starts. And uh, it's, it's a great, you know, it's kind of, among my friends growing up, we all felt that it was kind of a somewhat a boring area to grow up in, but also later on, we soon realized once we left that it felt kind of epic to us in a weird way, and we weren't exactly sure why. And I think it's just because, you know, it's, it's got this great geography, you're at like the height of land, you've got the Laurentian Divide, you've got the start of the Mississippi River, it's this place where, you know, uh, the woods are there, we have a big forest, and then you, you go a little bit west towards Fargo and you start to drive, and all the trees stop. And it just like the prairie begins. And then you're out west. My husband always likes to say that St. Paul is actually probably one of the last eastern cities. And Minneapolis is one of the first western. And you can kind of see that. It makes a lot of sense. You know, you've got the cobblestones in St. Paul. And then, you know, I feel like Park Rapids, my hometown, is very similar to that. Like there's a bit of a crossroads. And so also being from there, I feel like there's a lot of different um, uh, you know, there's prairie, there's woods, there's uh, lakes. You know, it's a great region for food. Unlikely, but it's a great region for food. <laughs> so I grew up there. 
with a mother who cooked really, really well. My grandmother, her mom, uh, was also a great cook, kind of famous among our family anyway for making, uh, for baking, for making bread, for cookies. I mean, everything she did, she kind of imbued with this uh, royalty, you know, everything was really special. And she wasn't afraid to say that what she made was really good. So I kind of like to say that she's one of the first, she was into self-promotion before it was in. <laughs> I mean, if, if she were still with us today, and I'm sad that she's not, but if she were and she were younger, she'd probably be tweeting pictures of <laughs> her bread. Pretty sure of that. But the bread was famous. I mean, she did, she won like a purple ribbon at the Minnesota State Fair when she was just a teenager. And as she described it, she walked up the aisle to claim her prize and all the older ladies' mouths were open <laughs> because her bread was so good, you know? And she, as she's like telling you this story, and, and you know, I believe it because the bread was amazing. It was just white bread, you know? It was just like white flour and water. But something about the way she made it, uh, it was like elastic, you know? And also she used this potato water and that is the water left over in the pot after you've made your noonday boiled potatoes that you then drained and you are going to mash and serve with the roast. Now this is a very, very Midwestern thing, this potato water business. Okay, and so I, I grew up absorbing these stories and talking about this stuff and then later as a cook I realized, I'm like, what is what with the potato water? And then I did some research and you find out that that was actually an early form of yeast. And if you let the, if you let the, you know, that milky kind of uh, slushy potato water sit out in the air, it would grab yeasts and become kind of like a sourdough. And so there we go, right? And, and it also gives everything that you put into it, every baked thing that you put it into, kind of more resiliency and uh, stain power and actually kind of more chew softness kind of thing. So, you know, years later now we have yeast and my grandmother had yeast, my gosh. Although she used that cake yeast, you know that stuff, huh? The great thing that we don't can't find anymore. Um, she she would use that, but it, you know all the bread she didn't need to use the potato water, but she kept doing it. And so that's a good example of like how how I grew up. And my mom, you know, she she really prized herself. She was very happy that she didn't have to garden, and that she could go to the store. And so she would go to the store actually two times a day. I mean, she kind of shopped like a French lady in northern Minnesota, you know, like out for the hamburger or whatever, you know. She was like going out to get, she would think about lunch and she'd go out and get it and then she'd think about dinner and she just, you know, we lived right in town so it was like, you know, you just go to the grocery store. And um, so I grew up going to the grocery store a lot and then also just among a family that, you know, my mom cooked everything and, and thought about, started thinking about dinner about two o'clock, you know, and then it was just like kind of, what are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? It's like, oh my gosh, I don't know, you know? So every single day, it was, what are you hungry for? And she would ask my brothers, you know, and me, and there were three of us, and uh, she'd have us, like, pick the vegetables by color. And if, you know, Bob picked green beans, then you couldn't pick broccoli, because that'd be two greens, you know? <laughs> and it was just like this very fastidious, I grew up with, like, a real fastidiousness about the simple things. And also, you know, among women who paid a lot of attention to a lot of minor details, which is a really, really good thing in cooking. And then sometimes when they do it about other stuff, it drives me crazy. But, you know, <laughs> I find myself doing it too. But, um, no, we, you know, just paying attention to the texture 
of a pie crust or something like that. You know, it pays off, and it's something you absorb as a child, and, and it stays with you. So, yeah, and a family, and we all argued about food. Um, you know, what was better? Who wants pepper in their eggs? Why garlic is good? You know, just like on and on and on. But my family's, my mom, my dad's side actually, they ran a meat market, and my aunt and uncle ran it, and my three cousins now work there, and that place is called Thielen Meats, and it's in Piers. And so I grew up with uh, a lot of really, really good smoked meat and uh, smoked sausages. And we didn't call them hot dogs. We called them wieners. And they were actually good for you. And they still are. And I feed them to my son. And I give him a cold hot dog in his lunch pretty much every single day from Thielen's. You know, it's like this. It's not very salty and it's not very sweet. So I feel better. You know, it's not, it's not this, like, crazy thing. It's, like, actually like a little mini sausage. So... Anyway, um, but I have to say that really all of that is, is fairly normal childhood, you know, Midwestern upbringing. But I think that the seeds of this book really started to germinate when I was about 22 years old. And I had left Park Rapids. My parents had gotten divorced and I moved down, to in, down into Egan and then later St. Paul and went to college at McAllister. And so I kind of felt like I was a little bit taken away from Park Rapids. And, you know, even though at 16 I was totally ready to leave it. Um, I don't know, there's something about not leaving yourself that makes you want to go back. And so I found myself at the end of college dating a guy from Park Rapids who was and is, he's my husband now, he's an amazing guy. Um, and then I felt this weird pull to go back there. And part of it was this cabin that he had built. He had built a cabin in the woods and he, he brought me back there and it was kind of a marvel, you know. He, he's an artist, he's a sculptor, and actually the, the cabin was like a sculpture. And, and it was like a re, recreating, it was kind of like a period room, or if it were a cabin. You know, you go into like the MIA, the Minnesota Institute of Art, and you go into the period rooms, and you walk in and you're like, where, what era, you know? It was like stepping back in time, honestly. He had no running water. It was built on a piece of land that his parents had had, it bought, you know, back in the 70s for hunting land way out, way far away from Park Rapids, like 25 minutes. I chart every mile every day, right? <laughs> so um, we, were tr we trudged back there, and I think I had an asthma attack because the snow was so high. And his road, he'd made it himself, you know, by chopping down the trees and following a deer path, literally, with a chainsaw. It was just like this really, still very windy road. And um, we ended up living there. And, and all, everybody, all my friends were just, you know, they'd known me sort of as a mall queen. <laughs> and uh, I had gone to McAllister, but I'd never gotten crunchy, you know. But something about the gardening is really what pulled me in. I mean, also the guy, you know. <laughs> it was very romantic. We had no running water. We had no power. We had oil lamps. And we read by oil lamps. So in the fall, you know, we would start reading at like five o'clock and start talking or whatever. And I'm like, what time is it? And so he's like, 7.22. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, it had been dark for hours. And so then, then it was time, it's like, how much money do we have? Let's go to the bar, you know? <laughs> and we'd like pull the pennies off the dresser and get like $4.25, which was enough for a pitcher <laughs> of beer. So. When it got to be the fall and we'd go to the bar, we're like, it's time to get back to the city. Um, but Aaron did everything, you know. We, we, 
he dug he dug the hole for the foundation for the building by hand with a shovel. I mean, we had you know all these little complex systems, these little homesteading systems with the water, and you'd turn the faucet, and it would just come out, and you know we all of our, our sinks would have these buckets beneath them, and they just like you know you'd pull the plug, and it would be like whoosh, you know like really wish that hope that you checked the bucket, you know. You only did that once, like, where it flowed over everything. But um, it was fun, you know? It was really, really fun. But I also found myself, uh, I found myself in a lot of contact with uh, the ways of cooking that my grandmother had known and her era. And I was really obsessed with cooking at this time, like, completely, like, I, I was supposed to be doing other things. I don't know. I had graduated from college, had no idea what to write. You know, I sat down and there was just, I had no subject, honestly. Um, but I was cooking. I was cooking like a mad woman, and I was preserving. I was grinding wheat, blah, 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 you know. And it was great. It was a great time. And I learned a lot, and I ended up having to ask a lot of questions because I didn't have the tools. I had to go and I had to go find these things, you know. So I called my grandmother a lot, like, "Oh my gosh, my sauerkraut turned like yucky again," and you know, she's like, "What temperature do you have it at?" Blah, blah, blah. And she's really bossy, you know. So it was very funny. And I said, you know, how how finely do I grind these poppy seeds for the poppy seed coffee cake? And she's like, as fine as snuff. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Those are the kinds of examples she would give me. And so, uh, also we had a lot of neighbors, and, and a lot of them were descendants of the old homesteading families around Two Inlets, which was a really tight-knit community, mostly of German, Prussian, uh, Eastern European descent. And so we would ask them a lot of questions, and we, we had a lot of time. We had a lot of time to visit for one thing, but also we needed to go visit because we would need like water, or you know, we'd go up to Leo's house and ask if he had like a part for our pump. And this old man, he was so funny, and he'd walk into his shed, and he's like, "I got three of those," you know. He's like, "You can have them." It's like you still had all this stuff, and it was a community where they hadn't had electricity really all that long. You know, the road out there had only recently had been improved maybe 30 years past. So they, they really only got electricity maybe in like the 50s, you know. So they had a lot of stuff. And, and still to this day, they're like, do you, do you want that kerosene lantern? I'm like, no, you, now we have power, you know, but it's kind of funny. Um, anyway, so I found myself just obsessed with like this early American cooking and collecting a ton of cookbooks, you know, all the church cookbooks, of course, and then um, we'd go on drives and I'd pick up like things from different areas, you know, and we'd, we went all the way up into Canada into like the rural heart of Canada where there's nothing. That's where my husband wants to go. He always wants to go north, <laughs> you know, in the wind, like, let's not go north. No, 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 no Alaska, you know, <laughs> let's go south. But, um, and so he wanted to go up into like rural Saskatchewan, which turns out to be absolutely beautiful and astounding. And you, and you don't meet that many people along the road, but the people you do meet are very memorable and really amazing. And all the food that I ate was really incredible. Lots of raisin pie. You know, eat pie every day up there. But anyway, and so I, we were just collecting. You know, He was collecting things about, for ideas and taking a lot of photographs of things for his sculptures. And I was doing a lot of collecting of just recipe stuff putting it in notebooks and had no idea what I was going to ever do with this stuff, you know, just interested. Um, and then one year we just decided that, you know, oh, I was working at the German diner in town 
on three days a week. It was called the Schwarzwald Inn, and it was uh, this guy Jorg ran it, and his mom, Gisela, had run it before, and I knew them, and because I grew up eating there, this is Park Rapids, there was like, you know, six restaurants. So um, I worked for Jorg, and I was making pies and everything like that, but I loved the brunch, you know, and I loved like really, really crazy uh, breakfast cooking, and it's just like, you know, eggs and everything's just coming so fast, and it was really fun, and anyway, I, I liked it, and, and I was getting paid $5 an hour cash, <laughs> which was not going very far toward the college loans. So my dad walks in one day, and he puts his order in, and I can see his ticket, and when it comes around, I see it's like chef salad, no eggs, I know it's my dad, you know? So I make his order, I make a chef salad, and, and then I walk out there and get a cup of coffee and walk out and sit with him, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, getting a cup of coffee. He's like, no, I mean, really, what are you doing with your life? You know, and he never asks a question like that, so I knew it was serious. And so I was like, I think I really want to go to cooking school, so we, um, we looked into it, and my husband realized very quickly, he's like, I really need to be in New York to be an artist. <laughs> you know, I can't just, like, be a hermit in the woods. And so, um, yeah, so we moved within a couple of less than two months, probably like three or four weeks we were there. Bam, we were in New York. And so then I was in cooking school, and then we, uh, I worked for, Aaron was doing carpentry, and he's really pretty quickly started becoming like a paid, you know, artist, art became his business pretty, pretty rapidly within a couple of years. And I was working in fine dining, which is nuts um, and cool. And I wanted, it was just like, I just, why wouldn't you just work? I was very green, you know. There was a chef, his name was Boulet, and I was like, I'm gonna go work for Bully, you know? <laughs> Horrible. But, you know, I also thought, why wouldn't you just work for the best place? You know, I was just very green about it all, and, and, and it ended up being just intense. But I think what I found in these places, you know, it's like a brigade system. There's like 20, 20 cooks, and everybody's just like striving and running around the kitchens. And, um, and on the plate, what you're doing is really what you're making is art, you know? It's not just... They're not just putting out food. I mean, these are like, you know, tasting menus of, you know, nine courses, ten courses, and sometimes they don't begin until 11 o'clock. You know, it was just a crazy, crazy world. But it was a beautiful food, and it was a lot of, like, fancy ingredients like foie gras and, like, you know, truffles, black truffles. I'd never tasted these things. I'd never seen these things. It was totally amazing to me. Squab. I had never seen squab. I've seen wild duck, but I had not seen squab. And... I also worked with a lot of these, a lot of Europeans, and they had worked. They had come over from a few Michelin star restaurants. Uh, my first restaurant was called Danube. The chef was Boulet, and um, the other chef, the chef de cuisine, was from Austria. And, the, and the, the food was kind of Austrian, kind of like sort of Austrian French, modern. And so these Austrians, they were very rural. You know, like the first guy, the one sous chef came in, and he was a super fancy cook. Like had come from a really and, you know, in Europe, a lot of times, the, the fancy restaurants are in the country, right? So that's where he had come from. And he came in with, like, really clunky shoes and looking a little unfashionable. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, you can't go to the clubs in that, you know. But so all these chefs had come from those places. And I think they kind of pegged me as rural after a while. I mean, I was really one of the only women in the kitchen. I think there were two of us among maybe 15. And... Um, yeah, I mean, they were like, how, you know, they would ask me things like, why are you screwing this up? Why are you frying the spätzle in, in canola oil? So disgusting. I'm like, 
Harrison told me to, you know? And they're like, well, how does your mom do it? And I'm like, in brown butter. You know, things like that. And so I, I realized, started to realize, like, maybe I'd grown up with some pretty good food, you know? And, um, and that if you come from a place where, you know, there's a lot of honest home cooking, and I mean, they really thought that American food was just like canned peas, and they didn't look too much on it. But that's because they only had known, like, the interstate of American food, you know? They didn't really know what was going on in private homes across the nation. And... Um, Anyway, I remember one day I kind of started, had like a little bit of a revelation when I was cooking with a sous chef and he was, he was training me and I was terrible, you know, I was really bad. And um, I had everything going on in the pot, everything was going at once and it was just like not going that great, you know, I thought I was going to get everything done, I was like burning and he's like, uh, he said, what are you doing here? And I was like concentrating on the truffle sauce because I knew it cost about, you know, $200 or something. Has like, you know, veal stock, veal glace, which is like reduced, truffles, Madeira, like two bottles of Madeira reduced. And he's like, listen, the truffle sauce, don't pay attention to the truffle sauce. The truffle sauce is going to be good. It's made of truffles. And I'm like, yeah. And he said, good cooking is this potato stock. Good cooking is potatoes and onions, you know. So that was like kind of like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like you can make anything really, really good if you just use basic, serious, you know, basic raw materials. And if you just give it your imagination. And that, I started to realize like that, that's what my grandma did. That's what my mother did. That's what everybody does when they cook from the grocery store in the middle of the winter in northern Minnesota. And that's what a lot of American cooks, and especially the Midwesterners, have done across the country. So... You know, in the Midwest, we've got this great heritage of great food that people don't know that much about. And so I came back to the cabin. I'd been, I trained and, and worked in many, many fine dining kitchens. I, I did it until I probably should have, like, struck out on my own. I was getting ready to, like, become a chef in a Brooklyn place. And then, you know, we got pregnant. And so I was 32 years old, and I'm like, well, I'm certainly not working these kinds of hours with a kid, you know, 80 to 90 hours a week. And so I ended up, we ended up kind of moving back home. We had the cabin and we just updated it and, you know, that's where we were. And so I started to think about it a lot and I uh, started to think, gosh, there's just so much possibility here. People just haven't really done that much with Midwestern food. And I started to like bring a lot of ideas in from, you know, what I had learned and in professionally. And then, you know, a lot of the things that I, Learn professionally kind of began to fell, fall away as well. Because when I was in, I'm cooking, you know, in the cabin in the middle of the woods, like, there's no, there's no delivery, you know. It's like, you cook every single meal. And I, you know, I really don't do a lot of processed food. Plus, it just takes up so much room. room. And so I cooked everything, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And um, I just learned a lot. You know, I started to, one day I remember that I realized that maybe, maybe I wasn't a professional cook anymore, it was when I, I walked in, I was like, I'm just going to buy that ground beef, pre-ground, you know, <laughs> instead of, like, grinding it yourself. I'm like, jeez, I was just like, where was my head, you know, of course, and now I'm just, like, buying whatever, I buy it all, you know. Um, canned beans, why would you, unless you really, really need to make and soak and cook your beans, you don't have to do that, you know. They come very nice and soft. Um, but I learned, I, I, I kind of came back to my roots and I kept the things that I felt were important. So 
some of the details that, you know, my grandmother, she was very detail-oriented, and so was my mom. And so it's like becoming, you know, home, home cooking is not about schlocking it out, you know. It's about paying attention to the things that are really important and letting the other stuff just kind of, you know, fall away. So that's what I started to concentrate on. I started to see a lot of hope and possibility and excitement about the whole region and not just the upper Midwest, but we would go on these road trips. We went down to like Indiana and we went to Chicago and we went, you know, we did, we, we drove countless times between New York City and Minnesota and we would often take that northern route that would bring us through the UP. And boy, the food is a lot better through there than it is on 8090. <laughs> I mean, you can stop and get like, you know, fried perch in a cafe, you have pasties, you know. There's like real food and it's pretty cheap and it was really good. I mean, they even like take a little dip into Canada and then come through, you know. That was a lot of fun. So we started to collect more, go a little bit further afar and uh, spend a lot of time in Nebraska because once we were back in the Midwest, then we were expected to go visit all those relatives in Nebraska. We wanted to, too, you know. Um, so we drove all the way down, and, and we spent some time in Grand Island, and we spent some time in Lincoln, and then we kind of fell in love with Omaha. Omaha is a very, very cool city. Uh, very beautiful, if you've ever seen, like, the old, old market region. It looks exactly like Paris, actually. People say, oh, it's like New York. I'm like, no, it's actually prettier than New York. It looks more like the Marais or something in Paris. Um, Omaha is pretty incredible, and, and you know a lot of these Midwestern cities are really beautiful. Milwaukee too is really really cool, um, and I spend a lot of time in Fargo. If you need a guide to Fargo, just seriously email me because I'm there all the time, because we drive over there to get you know stuff. We were there on Sunday just to buy like you know to go to Target. And <laughs> you know you live in the Upper Midwest when you'll drive like an hour and a half just to you know pick up something at a store. So when I started to write the book, then I, I realized that I really, one of the things I wanted to do is dispel a bunch of myths. Um, one, that we are landlocked and don't eat fish. Not true. We eat a lot of fish. We eat a lot of freshwater fish. It's kind of like a, you know, traded commodity, especially where I live in, in, in lake country. Now, you can't go into the store and necessarily buy that fish that comes from the lake because, you know, it's really about tourism and sport fishing and such. But it is, you know, traded among people's deep freezers, you know. <laughs> and it's good. It's so good. It's so good. The freshwater fish. I mean, I would talk to these uh, great chefs from New York and I remember interviewing this guy, Gray Coons, and he was Swiss and he's like, oh, I grew up on the lake, you know, in Switzerland. It's sweetwater fish. That's the best. I used to, he's like, I had a restaurant in New York and I used to get it from a place in Minnesota. I used to get the walleye, and I'm like, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> Can you imagine? So he was like importing walleye from northern Minnesota, I think it was from the Red Lake tribe, to his restaurant called Les Venas in New York City. You know, things like that. It's just always, so that was one of the myths that we, that we don't eat fish, and I think that our Friday night fish fries pretty much dispel that one too. And what was the other one? Oh, that our food is bland. Our food is not bland. It's not bland. I just think that often the spice is optional, you know? <laughs> We're not going to force it on you. It's not like a, you know, a dish of curry that's like so incendiary and that's the only thing to eat in the house. We're like, we give you options. Like there's like, you know, hot sauce, there's spicy um, hot mustard if you like it. There's, you know, hot horseradish, which can be very hot. 
If you are in my family, you know that. It's like, you know, up through backdraft, through the sinuses, like, get rid of that sinus infection now. Horseradish. Um, yeah, and then, you know, just spice condiments. So, and the other thing I think that's really exciting about the Midwest is that as an immigrant culture, we are, we, we're an agrarian, you know, this is, people came here for the land. People came here for, for the water. And, and, you know, I happen to have, like, the best water. I would totally bottle it, but I wouldn't want to give it away. Um, but people are still coming here. And that, I think, is a really cool and rare thing. People are still coming here in big groups and bringing all their food culture. So we're lucky that way. And it's changing. And that's why it's been, it's hard to say, what is Midwestern food? It isn't just Scandinavian and German food, although I do have a lot of those things in this book because I felt like they hadn't been paid a lot of formal respect, you know? And I wanted to list them before they were forgotten. But also, it's, it's very exciting to see like some of these amazing taquerias and the Hmong, uh, marketplace in St. Paul is like really honestly my favorite place to go on a Saturday. My husband, we drive past it, he's like, no. <laughs> I'm always like, yeah, let's go there, let's go there. I love that place. Um, so these are, you know, very intact regions, different styles of food, and I, I think that, you know, we have kind of a common agricultural or a gardener's heart, you know? And I, I often think about, when I think about the mid Midwestern food, I think of people growing little plots of things in their yards that, you know, even if they don't grow like a huge garden, they either go to a farmer's market or it's like, oh yeah, I've got some chives. Or, yeah, I've got some rhubarb. Or, you know, that's my wild grape over there. Or, you know, and people will just make jelly, you know? Like, I, especially of a certain generation, this is not a recipe that you have to, like, really study. Like, you just memorize that, you know? It's like you, you smash the fruit with some water, you measure the juice, you cook it, you measure the juice, and you add cup-for-cup cup sugar. What could be easier, right? I know some people are like, oh, I put honey in it, whatever. But no, just cup-for-cup just cup sugar. Super easy. White sugar just, like, actually shows off what the fruit tastes like without any interference. So you can add what you like later, but... It's an easy recipe, and I think that people a few generations back probably had it just memorized. And I think it's an easy one we can memorize again today. And um, that kind of brings me to what I call, I'm thinking a lot about lately, and when I first started writing this book, and I'm still thinking about it, and that is taste memory. It's really interesting because, you know, I feel like driving around the Midwest and going to a lot of really cool restaurants and seeing like my own memories on these menus. Now chefs from everywhere from Omaha to Indianapolis are starting to like dredge up things that they remember, right? And they're putting them on the menu. And that is I think at the point at which our cooking becomes maybe a cuisine, right? It's like collect, it's like this is, this is something that we share. We share it and it, it somehow, not all of us share it because we all grew up in different, from different kinds of people or whatever, but if you get enough of it going, somebody's gonna share, you know, and somebody's gonna remember things. And that's when it's like, it becomes our food as, as this kind of mixture that is a little bit different than the mixtures elsewhere. And that's kind of exciting, you know? And I also think about taste memory. I was, I was eating kettle chips today, and they were on my sandwich that I got to go from Park Rapids from the deli. Not the deli, the little coffee shop. And, um, I wanted to get the sandwich because I wanted the kettle chips, you know? But they were terrible. They were awful. They were like really bad kettle chips. But I was still eating them thinking, I remember when they were good. 
you know, last year when they used to get the kettle chips, they were good. So I just started, it's a dumb example, but I just mean that, you know, sometimes when you eat sweet corn in August, do you think about the sweet corn you're eating or do you think about the best sweet corn you ever, ever had? Do you know what I mean? So I think that the taste memory is really, really important and, and I feel like that was something that I wanted to convey in here. And so I have a lot of taste memories of my own, but also stories from all kinds of people. Should I read something? Let's read one. So, so this is, I, I kind of mentioned this trip way north into Canada, and I call it the heartland to the north. I feel like our food cultures and traditions and a lot of the people were very similar way. Going up, straight up, it, you know, it's like where the Alberta clipper comes down. It's like where the cold affects the people. It's like we stayed in that region. Okay, the heartland to the north. In 1998, my husband Aaron and I embarked on a road trip into the Midwestern heart of Canada, driving straight north from Minnesota into Saskatchewan. Our only plan was to indulge his natural urge to drive down the main streets of every little dot on the map, no matter how small, to see firsthand the outline of the town's ambitions and how it either met them or missed them. Just like around here, the communities that took our hearts were the ones that had fallen the farthest from their grand visions. Lines of vacant town lots that you could trace along the weedy fence rows. Wonky sidewalks that ended in fields of weeds. And town squares that were empty but for a bandaged court courthouse. Its lonely bell tower piercing the wide northern sky. Remarkably, these places were still alive, tenacious, vibrant. Somehow in this land of ghosts, we met more people than we've ever met when traveling. And despite the lack of public places to eat, I gathered a packed notebook of recipes and ideas. Rose and Eddie, for instance, were sitting in lawn chairs in front of their garage in an un unincorporated town, just enjoying the big sky when we pulled up. Bluer here than anywhere, boasted Eddie, and it kind of was. Aaron pointed an elbow out his window and let loose the questions that were always percolating in him. What came next was a local history lesson of the town, then a tour of Rose's canning cupboard, and a sampling of her excellent fruit leather. The best one was the color of port wine made from a miniature dusky, cold hearty plum. Before we knew it, we were sitting with them in a circle of lawn chairs in the driveway, next to Eddie's big rig, marveling at the same immense clouds above. But we had a long way to go. A few days later in Fisherton, we met Josie Davidow in the middle of a dirt road that stretched beyond her forever. The kind of road so straight that after 30 miles of it, you itch for a curve just so that you can steer. <laughs> she sat on an old style tractor, her blonde waves escaping their bun, Jessica Lang style behind her, her grandson on the rubber seat. Within 10 minutes, she was giving us strangers a tour of her farm, which at one time had been the Fisherton town center. Here, she said, you can still see the gas station pump. She then led us into a huge room, a cavernous farmhouse kitchen. It could have been a period room in a museum, the high walls papered in a faded pink and yellow floral, the corner bead crumbling, but it had serious presence. It needs some fixing up, she said, sighing, though it was obvious that she cared more about preserving its mood than remodeling it. Josie was talking to Aaron, saying, you have to live in a place your whole life, I think, before you really know it. As she handed me the book I'd been staring at, a spiral-bound collection of Fisherton community recipes. On the first page of the meat chapter was a recipe for peppered pork roast, her own. 
Take it with you, she said. I've since made it many times, and although I've updated it to use fresh black peppercorns in place of the pre-ground, this recipe reminds me of Josie and her place. Not fancy, and not shy either. We have reached the part of our podcast where we stop and open up the floor to questions from you, our dedicated audience. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage, to ask questions whether they're about recipes or writing or anything in between. It's a chance to bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question came from a gentleman in the audience, and I must say I do enjoy this one asking Thielen what her last meal would be, God forbid, and what meal she likes to cook for guests. No, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's such a hard thing. I mean, it, it depends what season. You're talking about summer? Then I just, I am a go-to steak on the grill kind of girl, you know? And then it's, I get nice, I like ribeyes only. Like, I'm really, it's terrible, but I love them. I love them with the bone in. I like a thick steak that, that you share that you cook, so you can cook it like till it's like pink inside, you know, and get it really dark on the outside. And then it's just garden, garden the rest, you know, and I love just any anything from my garden, just kind of boiled and tossed in butter. But I often, I mean, I add all kinds of stuff, like different toasted nuts and cheese and different salads, and I always do something cold, and I do something, you know. I don't know, I've got this like, this the summer meals. I, I miss them so much right now. I, I guess that's what's on my mind. I, I miss my tomato salad. And I would go tomato salad, steak, fresh potato. That's pretty boring, but it's pretty darn good. Corn. I mean, what's, there's, what, is there anything better? I mean, really, honestly. And then um, you think, what, would I, what do I make knockout for guests? OK, uh, there are a few things I make. Uh, I always make people from out of town wild rice. Because uh, where I live, we happen to actually we happen to actually live on a creek, and it's in this. You'll see a picture in the book of like the weedy one with the dock. That's like my front yard. We live on this creek that's full of wild rice and has been for many, many, many years. And the region, just the, I mean, down the road, we get it parched over wood fire, and it's like smoky and it's delicate, and it's it is nothing like the black patty rice, which shouldn't even really honestly be called wild. I'm kind of an evangelist about this, but. Um, <laughs> Wild rice, real wild rice, blows people's socks off. It really does. And, and a little bit of like really good bacon with that. Ooh, so good. And then I would probably serve that with, if I can get my hands on it, um, some s- sweet water or freshwater fish, you know? Just like, I love pan frying it. There's a recipe I have in here for walleye pan fried in butter. And that's just a little dusting of flour. And then you cook it till it's really nice and brown on one side. Flip it and do a little butter base with some garlic and herbs, and that's that over wild rice. That, that's really people are like, this is what you, this is local cooking. I'm like, yeah, totally. This is what this is what it tastes like to live here, you know. The next question is about what Thielen grows in her garden at home. I grow a lot of stuff. Everything. I don't grow corn because it takes up too much space, and I can get that from um, there's some kids who grow it in town, sell it in town. Um, I grow four kinds of tomatoes. I just put my seed order in, it's ridiculous. Um, I grow four kinds of beans, one for shelling, you know, for like fresh shellies. Um, and then sometimes I'll dry them if I don't eat them all. Uh, a green bean, one of those fat green beans. 
And then I usually grow either a fava or a soybean. Fresh soybeans are really fun. But now these rabbits have totally gotten a taste for them. I can't grow them. <laughs> give them a break. So I grow beans, tomatoes, peppers, carrots, beets, leeks, parsnips, celery. I mean, I grow everything. We grow not, not too much for onions because I just get frustrated. I'm like, just the Vidalia onions are bigger and, you know, they're just easier to cook with. The little fiddly ones, you know, they just start to kind of... I'll grow little onions to grill in the summer, but I won't store them. Um, potatoes, I love fresh potatoes. I think I would probably... You know what's, we know what's good in, in containers? Because when we lived in Brooklyn, we had... We lived in this, on this kind of, kind of a bad corner, but um, not too terrible. But anyway, we grew things in buckets. We had an outside space. But I think that cherry tomatoes are the plant that keeps giving... And, and I have, I grow this one, it's called, um, I like the yellow cherry tomatoes, like the sun golds, or, or the, uh, I grow this one that's from Seed Savers Exchange out of Iowa, which I love that catalog. Um, it's called Blondkopfchen, which is like some German name for like little blonde girl or something, but they're so sweet, they're so good. And then for herbs, you know, cilantro is always kind of lets me down because you have to replant it, although I love fresh cilantro. But parsley is a great thing to grow, and, and when you when you, it just keeps it stays, you know, and you can cut it down and it comes back, cut it down, comes back, and it's when it's fresh like that out of your little garden, little you know container garden, it'll add a lot to what you're making. You're like, oh, nice, or you know what else? Peppers are good, but buy the starts and just kind of baby them, and you'll be you'll be good. And then here, someone asked Thielen if she hunts for morels. You know those expensive honeycomb-looking mushrooms that people go crazy about? Yeah, we do. I, you know, I'm a little frustrated on... Uh, we have a lot of land, but for some weird reason, there's not a lot of morels that grow on it. Don't know why. So we, we tend to... We go kind of further afield and, and try to find, like, some cut-over, logged-over regions, you know, places of land. And people bring me stuff now. <laughs> Although not usually morels. I have this one guy... And he, he comes with, like, chanterelles, you know? I'm like, wow, man, chanterelles, that's really nice. You know, and he, he tells me the story. He's like, I took him to the OBT, which is the Osage Bait and Tackle, which is like a bar. <laughs> a bar and a bait shop, which is the best combination ever. But uh, he's like, I took him to the OBT and nobody wanted him. I'm like, why even go there? Just come straight, straight to me. Straight here. So, Yeah. Another member of the audience asks if Thielen follows recipes or just makes them up as she goes when she's cooking new things. I, I, I follow my own recipes. Um, I, I have a hard time sometimes following other people's recipes because I, I wing it so much. And at this point, what I do a lot is either I'm like at night when I'm cooking, either I am experimenting, it's like a first run and I'm not writing anything down, I'm just free cooking, or I'm writing it down for... You know, or I'm writing it down, and I'm kind of just making note, or I'm testing. But yeah, I've learned enough. I can kind of just whip it up. Like I finally, I don't make pancakes with a recipe anymore. I just, but you know what? Then sometimes they don't turn out that great. <laughs> that would be the problem with that. But you know, my son, my little six-year-old, he doesn't care. He just scarfs them down. He's just like more syrup. <laughs> Kitty drinks, he just like drinks the maple syrup. It's so expensive. I'm like, 
Our next audience member inquires if Thielen's grandmother is still alive, someone Thielen was very close to and spoke about early in her discussion and in her book. No, she passed away. It was hard. It was really hard. We've got a lot of her stuff in our house, like a lot of memories, you know, a lot of her kitchen stuff. I have like um, her, you know, you know those knives, like I have a lot of really cool old kitchen tools and then I have some pretty bad ones, like you know those knives that they sold in the, in the Minnesota State Fair and the guy's like hawking them and barking about it and it's like just a plastic handled, cra- you know? That thing works, though. And my grandma, like, she loved this knife. You know, like, are you going to the fair? Pick me up another, you know. It's like, it can cut through a can and then a tomato. And so I totally have that. And I put it on the network, on the, on the Food Network show, and I'm like, you know, it's like so dorky. It's like totally the Minnesota State Fair knife. But I have a lot of cool, cool old tools that she had, like, you know, nut grinders and... But, you know, my grandma died. She, you know, she was, she got a little bit crabby at the end, and I'd say, Grandma, tell me again how you make the lard crust. And she's like, what, you don't know how to make pie? (laughs) Call yourself a chef? I was like, oh. But she was just teasing me. You know, she didn't want anybody to get too, too fancy. Yeah, and she knew I was just, like, asking her for a memory, too. She was probably annoyed. You know, because she told me a million times, and I should just remember. But she was a really amazing, amazing person. Great cook, but really fun. Fun. She was so fun. More than a few audience members were curious about Amy's TV show, inspired by her book, on the Food Network. They asked about how the show came about, how it's filmed, and if she became a celebrity in Park Rapids, where Thieland, her husband, and son live. Yeah, I didn't really say that, did I? Okay, so, so I was working on this book. And because I'd worked out in New York, I worked for you know a number of years in kitchens. And during that time, some of the famous, pretty well-known chefs that I was working for, they had produced some cookbooks. And so, you know, they were looking for help trying to get like the recipes, which were like scribbled in notebooks, into some sort of usable form for you know. Anyway, long story short, I was I was often tapped as like the kitchen scribe. You know, they're like, "You're a girl. You can write this. You're organized. You can write this stuff." So. Um, I got to know an agent, you know, via those relationships, and because um, I did two different cookbooks, and so when I was writing this proposal, actually, I, I wrote a proposal for her with for another chef in New York City when I was pregnant with Hank, and I was still living in Brooklyn um, after I stopped cooking professionally, and and when I was like, if his first year was spent in Brooklyn, and that cookbook never sold. So that was kind of hard, you know, because I worked on it forever and didn't get really paid much. And my family was like, that was just racket. You just didn't get they paid, whatever. But you know what? I learned how to write a proposal. And so once I got the proposal, then I sold it to that, gave it to that agent, and she sold it. And it sold to a great publisher, Clarkson Potter. And because I was an unknown, I think people kind of, like, took notice of that, you know? Um, and also... Not, ha- not that much had been done about the Midwest. And I, you know, had the background and, you know, all of that. And, and the ties to the region that were very personal. And, and so um, somebody at Random House, I didn't know this, but Random House, they have a, a thing called Random House Studio, and they develop uh, movies out of books that they produce. And I didn't know it at the time, anything about it really, but they also develop... T 
TV shows, or they were starting this TV division. And so my book was kind of in the pipeline. It was like in manuscript form and being edited, and they were, they were passing it around, you know. And then, so that guy, his name is Peter Gethers, and he's a producer, and he decided that he wanted to produce it, and then he was, I don't know where he was at a party, or if he called Lydia Bastianich, or I have no idea, but Lydia Bastianich, who, I don't know if you know her, but she's a you know, pretty well-known uh, cooking author and TV, she's had her own TV show on PBS for what, 10 years? I don't know, a long time. And she's somebody I've always looked up to. And so they just called me one day and they just were like, okay, Peter's doing this. And then she's got Lydia Bastianich to produce it. And I was like, whoa, 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 back up, you know. So they just kind of laid it on me all at once and I, I was pretty shocked. But happy to do it, of course, you know. <laughs> and then they, they said they would come to my house and that's what I wanted because I, I didn't want to do like, you know, I was like, I can't do this in a set. I need my herb garden, you know. And that's why I moved home. It's like so I can cook out of my garden. I don't want to be cooking in a, at a set in the city, you know. So that's what happened. So we did like a sizzle reel first, which is, you know, kind of a trial. And then um, they sold it to the Food Network. And so I still have like my production team, which is the Random House people and then uh, Lydia. And then they came back and they did six episodes. And they do them like bang, bang, bang. Yeah. Yeah, they do them all at once. Well, you know what's really weird is that I, I just, I honestly don't feel it that much because, yeah, it's a small town, you know? And also, as my husband likes to say too, it's like, we've been famous forever. Like, <laughs> in Park Rapids. Everybody is famous in Park Rapids for something, good or bad. So, you know, you're known, you're a known entity. I grew up there, I'm not, you know, my parents, it's, they call, you know, it's like, we weren't imported from elsewhere. Like, I grew up, I grew up there. I'm a total, you know, Park Rapids person. So yes, everybody was already in my business. And it just doesn't feel terribly different, to be honest. And maybe if I, like, it was funny, I went to Milwaukee and like somebody recognized me in a store and I was like, weird. <laughs> it's really bizarre. TV is very bizarre. I, I, there have been a few moments where I'm starting to realize that, yeah, I'm on TV, you know? And, and it was so funny because my, my six-year-old, he's so not into it. Um, the first show came on. I was like, okay, time to switch to mom's show. And he's like, no. <laughs> you know? Totally will not switch the channel. And I'm like, time to switch to mom's show, you know? We're like totally pulling him away. So... Hank is not impressed. <laughs> in Thielen's book, she mentions a small restaurant called Carl's Lefsa in Holly, Minnesota, which an audience member was curious about and whether Thielen has attempted to make Lefsa herself. For those of you who haven't heard of Lefsa, myself included on this one, it's a traditional soft Norwegian flatbread made from potatoes, flour, cream, sometimes lard, and cooked on a griddle. Here's Thielen's reply. It's in the town of Hawley. So, you know, all these many, many, many drives to Fargo. You go through Lake Park Audubon, like really honestly the windiest place on earth. And then you get to this little town called, you get to Dilworth and then Hawley. Hawley's a really cute little town, pretty Scandinavian. I have some friends who are from there and their, their families were from there and it's got really deep Scandinavian roots. And there's a little building that's so cute. It's white and blue, and it says Carl's Lefsa. And you go in there, and there's a bunch of people in there, you know, making Lefsa. That's what they do. 
Got a job in town making lefsa. And it's good. It's really good. I've made it a bunch with, um, I'm not Scandinavian. My, my family is um, German, Eastern European, like Polish, and French Canadian. Uh, but I married into a family, uh, the Spanglers are um, German, half German, but his mom's side is very staunchly Norwegian. And they've got, and they, they come from a, um, a farm in Norseland, Minnesota, which is definitely a Norwegian town. And his grandpa's name was Ingvald Annexted. <laughs> he was so super. He was such an amazing person. He had a really good accent, and he was totally born here, too. Um, born in the States, you know. Like, maybe, I don't know how many generations, but his accent was very strongly Norwegian. He was a really, really cool guy, though. Um, and so a lot of those traditions, uh, the Scandinavian things I picked up from, from Aaron's, his mother's side. In the land of 10,000 lakes, someone was bound to ask it. How does Amy Thielen cook crappie? Yeah. Well, okay, so recipes I have in, in the book, and I have a bunch of freshwater fish recipes, but, you know, I grew up with fishing for crappies, too, with my cousins and my brothers. And, you know, my mom and my aunt, they would often make that cracker meal crust. And I, I used to think, oh, that's too junky. Can't do that, you know. But, oh, my gosh, it's so good. It's so good. It's the best. And so I mix it with um, the cracker meal really fine with uh, Japanese panko, those, like, puffed breadcrumbs. Boy, those two together make a really, really nice crust for fish, if you're going to fry it. And then, you know, I think, though, that crappie, I mean, I like just the pan frying, too, where you don't really bread it and you just kind of cook it in a really hot pan with butter and some herbs and garlic, and that's... Fish is pretty. Fish needs to stay simple, especially when it's that fresh. But breakfast, for sure make it for breakfast. That's what I like. After cooking in some of the greatest restaurants in New York, writing a book, and starring in her own TV series, many people are wondering, what's next for Amy Thielen? Well, I'm working on a second book, and um, it's a narrative. It's not uh, necessarily a recipe book. It might be have a few recipes, but that's a pretty big challenge for me. Um, so I've been working on that. And just trying to make good TV is really not that easy. I mean, it, it's a totally a new world for me. And um, it's been really fun. But I've learned so much because I knew nothing about it. Um, it's not easy. You know, you have to write in a different way. Um, your persona is like... I mean, when I, when I watch the episodes, they sometimes they'll send them to me for notes, which I think they hate to do because I'm so critical of myself, mostly. Um, I'm just like, oh, she's starting to really get on my nerves. It's like, you know, it's like a her. It's like, <laughs> it's not me, it's that girl, you know? And you have to kind of, you think about it that way, it's really weird. It's like the persona. It's very strange, you know? But it's, in editing, they can make you look this way or they can make you look that way. And, you know, you also, if you're, if I'm, the camera's on, I kind of have to be loose and like let it flow just kind of let it fly, and, and sometimes something good will come out, but then you run the risk of things that are really stupid coming out of your mouth. And I, I don't know. Making good TV would be, is a goal, and then also writing that book. And then being, being a good mom, you know, like taking time for Hank, he's only six, and uh, for, you know, not forgetting to make him dinner. <laughs> because he's so funny, like after the show, he's like, why don't you make me that pie? 
I'm like, I'm sorry, I'll make you a pie. Like, Cause you know, I'll make like, you know, five pies in a row and then like no pie after that. You know, it's not like I'm making pie constantly. I'm like testing a recipe and then we're done with that. And now we're on to soup or salad or something. Anyway, so I made him a pie and I sent him to school with it like for lunch, like a little sliver for like three or four days, you know, until it was not good anymore. And uh, he was just so proud to see that pie, you know. <laughs> Um, but he's a challenge to eat to feed. He doesn't like a lot of s different stuff. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Well, that's it from our Prior Lake Library event with Amy Thielen. Catch our next club book with Julie Kramer at Galaxy Library in Apple Valley on February 11th, 2014, 7 p.m. Meet Julie, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of Thielen's discussion on our Clubbook Facebook page, so check it out. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and the Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors, Minnesota Public Radio, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books. Finally, a very special thank you to the library's hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>